Let's, uh, let's say a word of prayer. Father God, we just thank you for this moment, this, this space that you've created in time. And God, as we open your word, we pray that you speak to our hearts and help us to hear clearly. We pray in your name. Amen. You know, as we're beginning, I just want to take a quick moment to recognize something because we've been talking about community, right? That's the last two weeks have been talking about how we as a church, we live in community. And I was thinking about that this morning and how today we come with heavy hearts, some of us, because as a community, we've experienced loss. I was thinking of Mark's wife who is out in Oregon right now with her parents, um, celebrating the life of her grandfather, the life of Clark's father. Uh, this afternoon, we have a memorial service. Yesterday, we had a funeral service. And so as we come here today, we feel a sense of loss. And whether that's a direct loss that we ourselves are experiencing from somebody that we have known for a long time, or one of our friends here in this church, we feel that loss together. But at the same time, as I was thinking about that sense of community that we have and thinking about what death means in our lives, it also underscores the importance of what we're talking about. Because when we're talking about living in community and we're talking about the hard things that we have to do to live in community, the way we have to think about the influence our lives have, the way we have to think about actually confronting our conflicts and dealing with them, and then today as we're talking about forgiveness, these things can be hard to do but given how short life is, given how uncertain life is, they're important things to do. So with that, let's open up for our final look at Matthew chapter 18. If you're using your pew Bible like I am, Matthew 18 can be found on page 913. And we're, we've been working our way through, we're going to finish up the chapter today as we get to verse 21. So Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. It goes like this. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? But Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. We've heard this before, haven't we? At least some of us have heard this before. How many times must I forgive somebody who offends me? When someone slights me, when someone hurts me, how many times do I have to extend that olive branch? How many times do I have to offer forgiveness to them? Now when Peter says this, and he says up to seven times, we know that Peter thinks that he's elevating the situation. In fact, he actually is. Because the common rabbinic teaching was that you only had to forgive somebody three times. And if you forgave someone three times, that was a good thing. It seems like there's a subtext there that if you were to go beyond three times, you may be a bit foolish, right? Because if you are to forgive someone and they hurt you again, and then you enter into that relationship and you forgive them and they hurt you again and they hurt you again, by the third time, you should learn your lesson and be like, all right, we're done with this. But Peter, knowing that Jesus is always elevating morality, that Jesus is always asking us for more, he apparently moves in and he thinks that he's elevating it significantly, which he actually is. But it's kind of like a teacher's pet. Have you ever had somebody like this in class? When you're in class together and there's that one student who always speaks, like Peter always speaks, and they raise their hand and they ask the teacher a question. But in the question, it's not really necessarily that they're asking a question, but they're looking to show the teacher how good they are and how well they understand the situation. And you can almost sense this with Peter, that as he raises his hand and says up to seven times, he's reestablishing the fact that he gets it, that he gets that Jesus is asking us to do hard things in community, that Jesus is asking us to live radical lives. 
And perhaps maybe even Peter's going back to what we talked about before, where he wants to reestablish that he is the foundation that the church is going to be built on. Right, Jesus? I get it. Up to seven times. But of course, Jesus responds with, no, not up to seven times, but up to 77 times. Some of your translations will say 70 times seven, up to 490 times. We don't actually know which way to translate it, but either way, it's pretty clear Jesus is really now elevating the situation, taking it to an entirely different level. In Luke's account of this, Jesus' response is seven times every day. Every time they offend you, it resets. The clock resets the next day, seven times. Next day, seven times. Next day, seven times. And we quickly get the sense of what Jesus is actually saying is I want you to throw out the accounting. I want you to stop being the good accountants that you are and throw out the numbers entirely. Because if you're trying to count up that high, you're going to lose track. You're not really going to be able to keep track of this. Throw out the accounting. But the truth is that we're actually really good mathematicians when it comes to knowing when somebody offends us, aren't we? You see, personally, personally, I'm kind of a forgetful person. I think I talked about this before, but I'm the type of person that needs the specific spots for different things in my house, particularly my wallet and my keys. Otherwise, there's panic nearly every day in the house. Um, but it's so bad that when we were having kids, when we were having our first one, Jocelyn, I had friends, not just one friend, but friends who would come and say, oh, you're gonna forget your child one day. You're gonna be one of those parents that you're like at the grocery store, you put the kid in the shopping cart, you take it out to the car, and then you drive away with your kid still in the grocery cart. It hasn't happened yet. It still has, I've never forgotten my child, I promise. But not only am I good at remembering to pick up kids, I'm really good at remembering offenses. I'm really good at remembering when somebody hurts me. As many other things in my life that I forget, I don't forget that. Are you with me? Have you ever been in a situation where you come across somebody that you haven't seen for like a decade? And even though there's been so much time in your life, once you come back together, the offenses from the past, they come back to life in your mind. You remember everything. And we kind of have this good ledger in our head where we keep track of these things, whether they've done good, whether they've done bad, and how they measure up. And are they the right kind of person? Can I still like this person? It's really easy to keep track of the wrong that people do to us. And Jesus straight away challenges us with this idea. Throw out the ledger. Stop the accounting. There is no limit to forgiveness. The forgiveness keeps on coming. When you're living in a relationship with me, you are called to a higher kind of living. But then, of course, Jesus doesn't leave it there because Jesus hardly ever leaves it there. He needs a story. He wants to drive it home with a story. And so we get our story. We have our parable, and the verse continues. So if you kept your finger there, we're still in Matthew chapter 18, and we go to verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him which owed 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 500 denarii. 
And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what, he had take, what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt, all that debt, because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. As if the message wasn't challenging enough before the story. The story kind of digs in a little bit deeper. A couple things to think about. First of all, we'll deal with some of the actual figures later. But the point is, is that this servant owes his master a significant amount of money, so much in fact that as we'll see later, there's no chance that he actually has of being able to pay back his debt. When he says, give me more time, I plead with you, I just want more time, I'll pay you back, those are empty words, empty promises, because there's no chance he's actually going to be able to do it. But somehow, some way in that moment, the master actually has compassion on him. It says that he has, in my version, that he has pity on him. I don't like to do this often, but every once in a while, it's fun to go back to the original word. And, and the original word here is, uh, is kind of a fun word. And there's a couple of reasons why I like the word that's translated as pity. One is just the way it sounds. The word is splanknitomai. I know if anyone knows Greek, I'm slaughtering it, but it's still fun to try. Splanknitomai. It kind of just rolls off. There's nothing like that that we have in English, right? It doesn't really convey the same kind of oomph when you just say pity. But the other reason I like this word is the actual meaning that's behind it. Uh, if, you, if you look it up in one of these commentaries, it says that it, it, it means to be moved as to one's bowels, which to our English ears sounds a little bit weird. Like maybe you just had a bad burrito. Right? Like if you're about, like it just doesn't sound right. But you have to understand that in their idea, in the, in the culture of the time, the bowels were like the seat of emotion. Just like we talk about our heart and like nothing actually happens in your heart when it comes to love, but we still speak as if love comes from the heart that just makes sense. That's just how we kind of feel. Our heart literally sometimes feels like it's aching, even though there's nothing connected there. Well, in the same kind of way, the, the actual idea here was that compassion, that lots of deep emotions or seed it in your bowels. And so I, I came across this. This is from an old Sabbath school quarterly, actually. And it was talking about this word being used in a, different, in a different story. But it says this, it means literally that his organs were convulsed by what he saw, moved so deeply as to have physical symptoms. This then is no casual pity, a shake of the head or a click of the tongue and walking on, but a gut-wrenching experience of empathy and love. Listen to that, a gut-wrenching experience of empathy and love. I like that because sometimes when we think of the word pity, we do think of kind of looking down upon someone. There's a, you know, we're, we're not looking at them as a, as a peer. We're not looking at them with deep empathy and compassion. But here in this moment, we see this person who owes so much that they can't pay for, and the master is moved with empathy and compassion. And, and clearly in this moment, we quickly begin to pick up who's who. Like we, we realize that, oh, 
that person's supposed to be me, and oh, that person is supposed to be God, and I owe God more than I can pay back, and he's moved with compassion and empathy. And at this point in the story, it feels really good, but all those warm fuzzies quickly dissipate when we get to the end, right? You get to the end, and suddenly this great compassionate master throws this person into prison, and it begins to feel a bit unsettling. What is this story really saying? And some of your translations don't leave it as simply thrown to a jailer in prison, but that they're thrown in prison to be tortured until they're able to pay their dues, which sounds really bad, but perhaps is probably more accurate to the actual text because the the word could actually be translated jailer or torturer. And it was common practice in the day that when somebody owed a great debt and they couldn't pay and they couldn't pay and they couldn't pay, that eventually that is what would happen. They'd be thrown in jail, and the idea was that if they just sat there in jail, they may not be motivated to actually pay their debts. But if there is torture involved, suddenly somebody would be motivated to pay off the debts. And those somebodies were usually the family and friends who couldn't bear the thought of them staying in that condition. When you read through different commentaries on this, some take it so far as to say, well, this is actually saying what kind of happens. Because what happens is you're thrown in prison, and if you owe that much money, there was no hope that this guy would ever be released. And so this master is essentially putting him in there to be tortured for the rest of his life, which then will be translated to, well, that's how God will deal with you, with this ominous tone. What are we supposed to make of this? What are we supposed to make of a God who, on one hand, we see compassion. On one hand, we see this pity. On one hand, we see this forgiveness. But then on the other hand, when judgment day comes, things change. Is God bipolar? Is God compassionate in this era, this moment, right here, right now? But suddenly, if you end up on the wrong side of the equation when he comes again, is suddenly all that compassion just gone? Does it change? Is he a different kind of person? Is he hard? Does he want us to suffer? The thing is, sometimes we get so hung up on the very details of parables. Sometimes we get so hung up on applying everything directly to this is God, this is how this is, this is precisely how it will look, forgetting that parables are a form of an analogy. And all analogies, when you take them to their extreme, when you begin to to apply everything to the true thing, eventually things begin to fall apart. And we, and we see that this doesn't always match up to the reality of the rest of the story that we see. The other thing we have to look at when we look at parables is we have to take them and say, is this congruent with the rest of the picture of the portrait of God that we th- see through the life of Jesus Christ? And if we're saying that this is representing God in this moment right here, does this, uh, does this square with the idea that we see conveyed through the life and teachings of Jesus Christ elsewhere? Interestingly enough, when you're looking at this story, you begin to think like everything must measure up exactly to what Jesus is saying. But when you go down just a chapter and a half later, later to Matthew chapter 20, you get to Matthew chapter 20, verse 25. And it says this, that you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you see the the inconsistency here with applying directly everything about this parable to who God is? Is God like the Gentiles 
Is God like them in his authority, the way that he rules it over the people under them? Or is God a servant king? Which way is it? See, when we're looking at a parable, we need to look at what is the core message of the parable. Because often Jesus is taking the common practices of the time, undoing them, turning them upside down in some kind of way, but leaving other parts untouched. And he has something else there in store. And clearly the core message of this parable, the number one thing that you can't navigate away from is that God places a high priority on us extending forgiveness to others. We clearly see that God has extended forgiveness to us. And then somehow that needs to change the way we interact with people around us to be in a relationship with God. The other thing about parables and about Jesus is that he tends to use hyperbole. Have you ever noticed that? Earlier, two weeks ago, we were looking earlier in the chapter that he says, if your hand offends you, cut it off. Does he want you to cut off your hand? Maybe, probably not, don't do it. Um, He uses hyperbole to underscore his message, to say, listen here, this right here, don't miss it. This is very important. And I think the same can be said here at the very end of the parable. He's saying, listen here, this is very important. You've seen this done with the rulers around you where they throw people in dungeons and torture them. So listen here to this part of the story. If you're not willing to extend forgiveness to others, it may impact the way that you're able to receive forgiveness yourself. In fact, it's a message that you see consistently throughout the New Testament, that there seems to be something about our capacity to receive forgiveness that impacts our ability and our way of giving forgiveness. So if we can't give forgiveness, we're moving to a different kind of economy. Usually we're moving to an economy of retribution. If we're moving to an economy of retribution, how can we have the capacity to receive a different kind of economy into our lives, one of forgiveness? The truth is that even without trying to figure out the character of God, it's still a hard teaching, isn't it? It's still a hard thing to to accept this idea that we're asked to continually give forgiveness. It's hard because, well, forgiveness is hard, but it's hard also because we're we're people that that we don't like to be taken advantage of. And it it seems slightly vulnerable to continually extend that forgiveness. Sure, I want to forgive the people that I love. I want to forgive the people that that I'm close to. I want to forgive the people that I trust. But it starts to seem like I might be taken advantage of if I'm too free, giving the the forgiveness away willy-nilly. What's going to happen if I keep going that way? You know, years ago, I I, I grew up in Maryland. My entire life up until college, I was in in Maryland. And almost my entire family is in Maryland or the, the surrounding areas. And, and I grew up right next to my grandmother, which is right where my father grew up. So my father grew up there and we just lived one door away and there's my grandmother. So I grew up with this great security of her being right there and this, this kind of firm placement in time where we've always been. But one day, my grandmother, who was, has been single since I was born, she found a man. Can you imagine that? Disrupted my entire life. She found a man through square dancing of all places. You never knew that was the place. If you're looking for someone, apparently square dancing is the place. So through square dancing, she finds this guy who was only living in Maryland a short time till he was returning home to Maine. And she up and left us and moved to Maine. Well, because of that, I started having a lot of family vacations up in Maine. 
throughout my life. And at the time, I hadn't really, my eyes hadn't been open to all the different great stores that are out there. But then I found this place called L.L. Bean. You've heard of it? I had never heard of a place like that when I was a kid. And I remember walking into L.L. Bean. I had never been in a store where you walk in and there's this giant moose just stuffed and standing there ready, like lurking over you. And I'm 10, and so it's giant. It's always giant, but it was really giant. And there's a river that's like running through the store, and my eyes are just so wide. And then everyone talked about how great the quality was of, of L.L. Bean. This is a fantastic place. In fact, even at the tender age of 10, even though I wasn't spending my own money there, I knew about about the L.L. Bean guarantee that if you bought something from L.L. Bean and you weren't satisfied with it, you could return it at any time, no questions asked. Well, a couple weeks ago, I was listening to the radio and I came across this program where they were talking about the L.L. Bean guarantee. And they were exploring how serious are they about their guarantee? Will they really take anything? And it turns out they will. There was a reporter who goes there to find out what's happening, and she sat there and just watched the return aisle as people came in with their stuff. They watched, so they came in. Some were legitimate returns, like, oh, this is the wrong size. I need a bigger or smaller size. But then there was these other weird ones. Like, there was this one lady who comes, and she had this big bundle of, of sheets, like bedding and, and everything that goes with your bedding. And as she comes with this big bundle, the reporter said that it was visibly used. Like, there was no question that this had been used for a while, as only used bedding can show. And she comes and she decides that she's not satisfied with the bedding because she upgraded it to a bigger size bed. And now this doesn't fit her bed. They returned it. They took it and gave her store credit to buy whatever she wanted in the store. Then someone else comes and they had bought a chair from L.L. Bean. And they strapped it to their car. But then they drove off and realized they didn't strap it so well. They realized when they hit the interstate, flies off the car, explodes. They're not satisfied because the chair that they bought is broken. L.L. Bean took that broken chair back and gave them a new chair. Then there's this one guy who shows up and he complains that his shirts are starting to wear out. And he just loves these shirts because these shirts have always lasted so long. So they asked if he's not satisfied with his product. It's like, well, they're wearing out a bit. And the reporter is having a hard time staying objective. She's starting to actually talk into the situation, like, what? Because these were very visibly worn shirts. It turns out he bought them 40 years ago. 40 years ago, and L.L. Bean still took those shirts and gave him store credit with the current prices. Inflation, not even a factor there. It's amazing, right? And, and as, we're, as this person's listening to it, as I'm listening to it, it's hard not to get angry. And the question is, why is it that we get angry in that situation? And the answer is, because it's not fair. By the way, don't pick up bad habits. I feel bad. Like, if any of you go back and return bad items to LLB now, I'm going to feel responsible for this. So don't do it. Be good people. But, but when someone else does it, even though it's following store principle, and even though L.L. Bean has the, they, they clearly trained for this. In fact, they said that some people who worked the service desk had to leave because they just didn't, they couldn't stomach it anymore. And so it was only the very strong who could take the sense of, this is totally wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway for you. Only those people could work the counter. But why is it that, that it bothers us so much to see somebody getting off with something that they should not? It's because it's not fair. And, and this is the, the thing, this is in us, right? If anyone's a parent, you know that it's in us very early on because when you're a kid, there's a high sense of justice that comes right away. But that high sense of justice doesn't really leave us easily, 
does it. Have you ever been on the freeway and you're in traffic, things are backed up? And as things are backed up, there's a, uh, you, you can't maneuver, you're just stuck, and you're sitting there thinking, I wish I could move, I wish I could move. Time's, time's never more valuable than when you're in traffic, but you're just stuck there wishing you could move. And then suddenly someone on a motorcycle just zips right past you, that little space right there, and, and it's so angering. You get so mad. If any of you have done this, I'm sorry if I got mad at you, but it, you, I get so mad. And it's always this weird moment, like, why am I mad about this? What is it that really bothers me in this situation? Because the fact of the matter is, whether it's legal or not, he has plenty of room to do that. And in him doing that, it's actually not slowing me down at all because he's on a motorcycle, right? It doesn't actually impact me in any kind of way. But somehow the fact that he's able to zip by and I have to remain there feels unfair. It makes me upset. And then I get angry because it's not fair. But then comes a different moment. Traffic picks up, you continue on, and you find the same guy pulled over. Now how do you feel? How do you feel after that guy who zipped past you earlier is pulled over? It's a good feeling, isn't it? It feels really good. In fact, science tells us that this kind of stuff feels so good, that particularly when it's, it's personal, if it's something that we are enacting revenge on someone else, it actually feels really good. I came across this article. This was um, from, what was it, scientificamerica.com, whatever that is. I just found it on Google. Uh, Scientific American, they said this. They said that the human brain can take pleasure in certain kinds of revenge. They've done some MRI scans, and it's revealed that thinking about revenge, just thinking about it, activates the reward center where the feel-good neurotransmitter dopamine is lodged in much the same way that sweet foods or even drugs can. You get that? Like we have dopamine that's released as soon as we get revenge. It feels good. It's even addicting. There's a reason why we call it sweet revenge, because it feels really sweet when that happens. And it seems like when we're talking about forgiveness, when we're talking about letting go of what someone has done to us, this is part of the price that we pay, is that we're letting go of the feel goods that we get of withholding that from them. And even if it's not about revenge, even if you're not the revenge type, there, there's a certain amount of power that you feel when you withhold forgiveness from someone, when you refuse to let it go, or when you offer fake forgiveness. You know what fake forgiveness is? I think couples know this very well. You'll say that you're sorry. You'll say that I forgive you. But then suddenly when the right situation comes up, you bring it back to that, what's the offense that took place earlier. And it becomes a, a moment of control, a moment of, moment of manipulation. Forgiveness is letting go of that. Forgiveness is, is releasing that power that you have. And it can be a really hard thing to do. In fact, actually, the word for forgiveness here, the word for, for forgiveness that they use in the New Testament, uh, can mean and is translated elsewhere in the Bible, to let go. And it's hard. Because letting go means that you lose something. And, and in fact, you should, should remember that when you're looking through the text, through the parable, that it does cost somebody to forgive. When you forgive someone, it, that there is a cost that's involved. It's not like the debt is just magically erased. Somebody has to absorb it. Somebody has to take that upon themselves. And when you forgive someone, in a way, you are absorbing the cost. It's the new economy. 
It's rather than living with the retribution that you could live. It's rather than making somebody else pay for the mistakes that they made. You take it upon yourself to some level. But Jesus takes this whole idea of what's fair and what's not fair, and he completely flips it on its head, doesn't he? Because when he talks about this, if you, if you want to talk about what's fair, what's really not fair is the very first debt that's forgiven. When the fir- very first guy comes to the master and says, man, I, just give me more time, I can pay this, and the master gets rid of it, that's really not very fair. It, when we're talking about the debt, sometimes it's hard to even know exactly what Jesus means. I think Jesus means a zillion dollars. Like if he was to say it today, I think it'd just be like a zillion dollars. Because he's reaching for the furthest biggest number he can. There was no, uh, they say that the unit of measure that they would use in accounting would never go greater than 10,000. So 10,000, he's reaching for like the greatest kind of measurement that he can. And when he talks about a talent, that was the biggest currency that they had. And, And when they try and translate it to what does that mean for today, if we were to put a dollar figure on what that means, or if you were to say how much work would it take to work off this kind of debt, There's a bit of uncertainty about it because there's different kinds of talents. There could be the Greek talent, the Jewish talent. But either either way, we're looking at a minimum of 150,000 years of labor to pay back that debt. Millions and millions of dollars. 150,000 years of labor to pay back that debt. But then later, when he gets to the, the other debt, the other servant that he won't forgive, it's 100 days of labor. It's still significant, right? If you think about that, like how much would 100 days of labor cost? I wouldn't want someone to cheat me of that. That's a significant handful of cash. But it's nothing like 150,000 years worth of work. So Jesus is saying if you're trying to compare scores, if you're trying to figure out whether forgiveness is deserved, it's not. But it wasn't deserved for you either. You've already received something that you have no reason or right to claim, but you have. And because of that, that should transform the way we interact with others. It should transform the way we extend the grace to the people that are close to us. And by the way, when we're talking about this, it's easy to say, like, to to abuse what it means to forgive. To forgive means to release something. It means to let go of something. And we're releasing that guilt. We're releasing that power, that authority, that manipulation that we can hold over them. But it doesn't mean to forget. At least it doesn't always mean to forget. There are times when forgiveness is offered, but the relationship is still changed. There are times when forgiveness is a needed process for you yourself. By the way, there's, we could go over the medical studies of how it improves your blood pressure, it makes you healthier. It's, it's good for you to forgive. It makes you a healthier, better person. It's, it's part of the process. It's actually in self-interest. You will be healthier if you are willing to forgive. But when we offer that forgiveness, sometimes the relationship still has to change. To offer forgiveness doesn't say that I'm going to submit myself to your abuse any longer. Sometimes people continue to return back to their old ways again and again and again. But like the Bible talks about the dog returning to his vomit, we don't have to go back with him to the vomit. We can go our separate ways and still forgive. We can still release somebody from that debt that they owe us. And what happens when we do that is something powerful. When we're actually willing to do this in a big way, it's transformative. 
And sometimes it's easy for us to think, well, I can do this up to a certain level, but maybe there's some level where it just, it's just not right to forgive anymore. It just doesn't, just doesn't make the same kind of, it's just not, not, even, more, not even fair, like that's not even the right word. It just seems harmful sometimes to forgive. But could there ever be something too big? If we're living by the example of God, is there ever something that's outside the realms, the reaches of forgiveness? A number of years ago, you remember that there was a, a school shooting that took place. Uh, but this school shooting was a bit different. It was a bit different in the fact that it took place at an, at an Amish school, which seems so different from so many other places. Uh, it took place, and this was back in 2006 in Pennsylvania. And the guy's name who, who did this shooting was Charles Roberts. And, and he, was a, he was a 36-year-old man who, who had his own issues, his own baggage that he was dealing with. And the baggage was that he was angry at God. He had lost a, a child at, it was either birth or just a couple weeks after birth. And he always felt like God was, was responsible for this. I always felt like God had, had taken something away from him that was his. And so he had this anger in his life. Mixed with the anger, later they found in a suicide note there had also been some, some bad choices of his own. Um, he had molested some kids when he was a kid himself. And he always had this shame. So he had shame mixed with anger. And he eventually erupted into something deadly. And he says this. When he came to the school, he said, I'm angry at God. and I need to punish some Christian girls. I'm going to make you pay for my daughter. So on a sunny fall morning, he gathered 10 kids there in the classroom, shot them, shot himself. Five of them died. And, and like that's one of the, it's almost... It's almost like a story that we know, because we've heard it so many times. Shooter comes into a school, takes someone out. It's tragic. It's sad. And it could have ended right there. That could have been the end of the story. But in this book called Radical Forgiveness, God's Call to an Unconditional Love, author Brian Zond goes on to unpack the further story, the story that kind of rocked the world. Because right after what happened, you'll remember that there was incredible forgiveness that was extended by the Amish community to the family of the deceased, the family of the shooter himself. They brought gifts of food to Amy and her children, telling Amy, this is the wife of the shooter, that they had forgiven her husband and had no animosity toward her. They also promised to help her in the future by providing for whatever she might need. Five days later, when the Roberts family gathered to bury the gunmen, more than half of the 75 mourners were from the Amish community. Some of the Amish mourners who gathered around Amy Roberts and offered hugs of support were the parents who just days earlier had buried their own children. And there they were. This moment that should have been a tragic moment was transformed by the forgiveness that was offered. When you look at the very beginning and Jesus says to forgive 77 times or 70 times seven, he's actually quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from Genesis chapter four. Right after Cain has been cursed, and he's given this curse that actually protects him. Someone else murders people. His name is Lamech. And Lamech makes this poem, and he says, if Cain's punishers will be punished seven times, mine will be punished 70 times seven, or 77 times. That's what Jesus is referring to. He's saying we're going to escalate the punishment. The punishment gets even higher for me. Jesus is flipping it around. We de-escalate the problem. We de-escalate the retribution. We take in, we absorb it, because that's, what Jesus did. 
we're called to a higher plane of existence. We're taught, called to a, to a forgiveness that is radical. We're called to a forgiveness that's given freely without constraint. 